and welcome back to the Cycling Tips Nerd Alert podcast. I'm your host, James Huang, and we have a special episode in store for you today. There's been a lot of attention on the environmental front given the recent United Nations Climate Change Conference, also known as COP26. Several months prior to that, however, Trek actually released its own inward-facing sustainability report that it had done by WAP Sustainability Consulting, and that report took a detailed look at Trek's practices over the previous year or so. The publicly released version of the document isn't massive, it's less than 40 pages, but what's particularly interesting is that it doesn't exactly paint a super rosy picture. It's well worth reading as there's a whole bunch of eye-opening information in there, not only talking about where the carbon emissions are coming from in Trek's operations, but also going into some detail on what the company is planning to do about it moving forward. We wanted to dig into this a little further, so joining me today is Cycling Tips tech editor Dave Rome, along with Trek's director of brand marketing and public relations, Eric Bjorling. Before we dive in, I'd recommend having this report open on your device if possible so you can follow along with some of the things we'll be talking about here, and we'll make sure to post a link to that document in the pod description and on the associated article. I also want to apologize in advance for some of the sound quality issues we had with Eric's track, which we unfortunately didn't realize until the editing process was cutting out for a few seconds here and there. Hopefully you don't find it too distracting as it doesn't take away too much from what he had to say. But with that out of the way, let's go ahead and get into it. Eric, thanks so much for being on the Nerd Alert podcast with us today. Well, thank you so much for having me. For anyone who has not yet had a chance to look at this sustainability report that Trek has put together, it seems pretty comprehensive. Uh, and it also feels like more than just lip service. Uh, Dave, you and I have been digging into various companies, sort of like, you know, sustainability statements and that sort of thing. And and a lot of them are pretty bad. <laughs> um, I'm curious, Eric, from your standpoint, what was the motivation for this for Trek? And what was the directive from Trek when you commissioned this study from uh, WAP Sustainability Consulting? So it really goes back um, a couple of years ago. Um, we had started to take a look at what our corporate footprint would be. We got really sort of interested in understanding exactly what our contribution. Um, and I would say that really um, got kickstarted in a really, really big way, actually about, let's say about a year and a half, maybe 18, a little over 18 months ago. Um, we got the directive directly from from John, our, our, our uh, Trek's president, and he had uh, actually watched a, a film by Rory Kennedy um, called Going Beyond. It's a, it's a documentary about NASA, and it talks about the race to the moon, but really it, it makes a very hard pivot and into actually a um, incredible expose on the on the current crisis facing our climate, facing our planet, um, and it really <laughs> and the way he tells it, it scared the hell out of him. Um, and he got really interested in exactly like where this was headed. And he spoke to the filmmaker, and he spoke to a number of people in doing great environmental work. And he decided and made the decree that we were going to get our house in order. Um, and uh, the first step for that good journeys. You got to understand where you are before you can understand where you want to go. And that's when we got a hold of the WAP. We, we took a look at several different companies that do um, sustainability consulting, emissions measurement, um, things like that. And uh, they were definitely the partner that, that we thought could really lead us to a good spot. And so we spent about a little over a year uh, assembling the documentation that we needed, doing the right forms of study, doing the right measurements um, to really give us a, a 360 view of what our footprint is, you know, and that's scope one, scope two, scope three emissions, I mean, all the way through the supply chain. And um, once we had the numbers, I mean, it it's wasn't a great story, um, but it, at least it was uh, enlightening to understand exactly where we were and where the opportunities were for us to get better. 
Well, I guess that's for me the most impactful thing about this is because, as you said, it doesn't necessarily paint a particularly pretty picture. Um, and Trek being a company that makes things for people to sit, uh, for people to buy, um, I mean that that sort of business is, I guess, inherently contradictory to the whole to the whole, uh, I guess, ethos of you know sustainability and consuming less that sort of thing. Uh, I, I'm kind of curious from Trek's perspective. It, it seems like you went went into this. I guess with the understanding and the realization that you might not like what you were going to hear, right? Mm -hmm, absolutely. Um, it was, it's been a journey for us because I think we got really comfortable uh, knowing that we don't know everything here and that actually we have a ton to learn and we had, um, we have a long road that this wasn't going to be a report that actually um, made us feel great um, about ourselves. It was going to be something that we were going to use to actually build something and build a platform that we felt could make a difference. Um, and so when you take a look at all the, when you take a look at all the numbers, when you take a look at, at, at all of the emissions and where they come from, we had no idea really where those things, I think if we had asked ourselves or if we had put a, a best guess together, we probably would have thought it would have been from, you know, uh, employees riding or driving their cars to the office every day. And to find out that that was such a tiny fraction of actually where our potential lay, um, and that actually it's much more in the manufacturing and the transportation of, of product and supply chains, really in that scope three, which is, I think, where a lot of companies sort of miss the boat. The scope one, scope two are very actionable. Those are things that, and, and, and typically those are going to be paint a much rosier picture. It's really when you get into the entire supply chain of things that, that things really become scary. And from there, it, it was understanding, okay, if this is the reality. What can we actually do to change that in the future? And so really, it was just for us uh, a really big moment of, of self-discovery and understanding exactly where we had to had to begin. Um, there are some pretty big questions that Dave and I want to ask you about some of the findings of this report. Um, I kind of want to start a little bit, though, with um, you said earlier that um, like kind of like the manufacturing and transportation are, are, are the biggest pieces of the emissions uh, puzzle, at least as far as Trek is concerned. But you have identified a whole bunch of really tangible action items uh, that you're going to that you you're, that you either already are doing or are looking to at least even build upon or start doing in the very near future. So if you wouldn't mind, I kind of want to touch on on each of those just for a little bit first. Um one of those is you said you want to reduce the use of air freight, which is basically just as as it's as it's described, you know, shuttling goods uh, around by plane. I think most people are most people expect that the the majority of goods that are produced in an international supply chain are, are moved around by by boat. Um, so why do you use so much air freight anyway? Air freight is really it provides you a couple of different advantages, um, especially when you're working on a, on a global business with global warehouses. It's speed to market. Um, is really, you really can't touch air freight um, as far as something that just can get your product into the marketplace as fast as possible. And with the, you know, the increase in demand for bicycles over the past year and a half, it's been an incredibly like even more enticing option, knowing that we're trying to catch up and we're doing everything we can to, to increase that speed. Um, but when you take a look at the amount of carbon that's emitted from air freight versus like an, a slower option, like ocean freight, um, train, um, automobile, things like that, it it's it is a huge huge um, chunk of of the um, transportation emissions. It's just getting that uh, just getting the product into a retail store. And so when you when we take a look at it and say, hey, we really need to be as far as the amount of um, emissions. And it was one of those things that we had we knew that we kind of knew like that we uh, that that air freight would would pose probably a greater environmental risk, but we didn't exactly know how much. 
And when, once we got into the study with WAP, we, it, our eyes were really open to, oh my God, like this is, um, this is not, it's not a small percentage, it's a massive percentage uh, difference. And so what we need to do is we need to become more efficient. And, and this report, I should say, has also got a lot of downstream and upstream effects to it, because upstream, it just means we have to be better forecasters, we have to be better, um, you know, we have to be better in uh, supply chain management, we have to be more efficient, we just have to run a more efficient business. So that we can actually say, yeah, okay, ocean freight is something that we're going to rely primarily on, and we're going to deal with whatever the time is with other processes up front that's been allowed us to, to use that. Okay, and I guess another part of that is another step in this, uh, another uh, line item that you have on here is consolidating shipments in general, uh, I guess, particularly to, I guess, retailers and distribution, that sort of thing. Um, so this is all, this is all clearly very much related to pretty careful planning. I mean, a lot of work is going to have to go into this. So, but but how, how do you go about consolidating shipments when there are so many things going to so many different places? Mm-hmm. That's really where you get into a lot more um, uh, systems like sophistication. Um, it's, it's really where um, you, you need to take a look at exactly your, your whole supply chain, not just from actually getting it into your place, but it's actually the next step is how are you actually moving that product efficiently? It's a couple of things. It's for us, it's actually um, making sure that every single warehouse and every single uh, touch point is actually talking to each other so that we don't actually have one package going to one state on one truck so that you're actually using um, and, and you're communicating with your retailers and understanding exactly like, hey, your shipment is going to be coming at this time and just managing that expectation. But it's also going to be coming with these other products, these other items. And we're doing this because it's going to save X percent. That's really the hard part, um, I think, is once we say, you know, because um, we live in a world where we've been trained in, to expect everything yesterday um, or expect it almost immediately. And to become a more sustainable business, we're going to have to do, um, we're going to really have to do a balancing act of managing expectations of when people are going to be able to get things, but, and with also measuring what the environmental impact of how we get it to you is going to be. And I think for a lot of customers, if you can communicate that accurately and show that you're, you're doing that work and that, and that, um, that is something that I think a lot of people will appreciate, but it's not an easy thing to do at all. Sure. Because I guess if nothing else, I mean, it's all just a matter of managing expectations, right? Hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and it's really tough. You know, you're living in a world where, again, we, we expect things to be in our in, in our mailboxes tomorrow. Um, and um, I think the uh, the current state of where things are at as far as uh, climate wise has shown that that's that's not necessarily um, the most sustainable way of, 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 of living or, or doing business. How's the retailer reception been to that? Uh, to the idea of doing, uh, I believe you're doing sort of shipments once a week. You hold off and consolidate it for a once a week delivery. What's the reception been like from your from your retailers? You know, overall, it's been really, really good. Um, overall, you you explain to them why. Again, you talk talk to people about like, hey, we're actually going to do this pilot, and we really ran this pilot in Europe to see if we could do it. Um, and it was just one of those things. Uh, we were really doing a number of different things that I think we thought were sustainable in, in a lot of places. And once we were going through the process of the report, we found out a lot of these things were maybe well-intended, um, but not necessarily as effective. This was something that was actually a pilot program um, from our European business that was um, really, really actually helpful and um, enlightening. And they, they had run this pilot and said, hey, let's just try this for a little while see if there's a, um, let retailers know, see what the reaction is going to be. Um, and it just became part of their regular business. And it all came from just 
constant communication of what's going to happen, why we're doing this, when you're likely to see this. Um, and overall, I think um, it's been overwhelmingly um, uh, positive. And that's, you know, getting customers engaged with uh, your your own sustainability plans and, under, and getting them to understand exactly why you're doing something and, and what the benefit is and getting them to like actively participate. We have found that others have been really excited about when we bring them into things that we're doing and explain to them exactly like what the benefit is going to be. Cool. Okay. That's awesome to hear. Next couple items I feel like are pretty much no brainer things. So you want to increase reliance on renewable energy. That's again, seems, seems like a no brainer. Um, you're also going to plan to reduce your corporate travel to, I guess you're saying 50% of pre pandemic levels, um, which we certainly are looking at doing that as well. If only for the fact that people are kind of tired of flying all over the place. Absolutely. Um, Absolutely. Uh, and, and I guess for, as far as the corporate travel thing, it does really seem like over the last year and a half, almost two years now that people have not only really gotten used to the idea of not having to physically fly around everywhere, but I think we've all proven that it's not really as necessarily as it's not really as necessary as we thought it as, as we thought it needed to be. Right. Absolutely. I, I would 100% agree with that. Um, you know, you, you guys have seen it too. I'm sure, you know, we've really gone to a full digital mode for when we have product launches, media calls, things like that. Um, we've gone to a much more um, uh, sort of digital based where we're actually sending um, product into the market and you guys can test and ride and experience those products on the trails that you guys ride and, and love every single day. Um, and I think, I think, I know we're not alone in that. I think that a lot of brands have found a lot of efficiencies actually. And I know on the other end, it's actually, we've gotten great feedback from, from, from our retail partners who don't have to come to a Trek world and have to sit in the conference room for several days. They can digest this on their, at their own pace. They can do it in their living room. It's a lot, a much more comfortable um, thing for them. And, and having those things on demand to be able to recall again um, has just been really helpful. And I'm sure you guys have experienced this as well with all of the brands that you, that you guys work with um, from a media perspective, too. Yeah, definitely. For sure. No question. Um, the next one that you have on your list is, is a particularly interesting one to me. I feel like you say you want to increase the reliance on alternative materials because um, you've already started using a lot of recycled plastics and various items. Um, I, I guess the, the poster child for that, for that sort of initiative internally for you is, is, uh, the, the bat cage that, that bottle cage that you're making out of, I guess, recycled fishing nets now. What about for, I, I think that sounds great for plastics, as long as you can get a sufficient supply and all that. But another thing that Dave and I were wondering about was, uh, was metal because metal is certainly a pretty prime consumer of, uh, of energy and resources. Um, is there any chance that you might be looking at something like, you know, using more steel instead of aluminum or more aluminum instead of carbon fiber, for example? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Uh, the, and you're hitting that, you, you're actually hitting on exactly where, where you're taking a lot of those emissions and what the environmental impact is of extracting things out of, out of the earth. And, um, especially when you take a look at the full life cycle analysis of a product, um, how long something can be used for, what it took to make it, um, what's its end of life, um, does it have a closed loop solution? Yeah, for, for plastics, we, we, I think we're, we're reaching to a much better place much more rapidly than metal. Um, we have started to use recycled alloy and, um, uh, and some other um, pieces that we've got in the works as far as from our research base. It gets really, really tricky when you start using um, alternative materials on like load bearing um, parts of the bike. When you're talking about, you know, a frame or you're talking about a seat post, um, steel is is still um, environmental impact out of like the three. If you take a look at steel, aluminum, and carbon, out of those three, steel is going to be the easiest to recycle. It's going to be so it has a better closed loop solution. It's also got one of the more. It's got one of the least less intrusive um, extraction methods. 
Um, and it can be ridden for a long time. So really, when you take it on, on the life cycle analysis of, of a steel bike, it's actually it, it, it's a, not a bad um, thing. You know, um, aluminum has, it holds a lot of potential. I think there is a lot of potential for recycled alloy and recycled aluminum to become a much more prevalent material um, in making uh, in making products. The industry uses a ton of aluminum, and I think this is where we would love to see cross brand and cross company and cross industry collaboration because I think there's probably people who know a lot more about it than we do alternative materials and having this in the report is something that we're kind of trying to hold ourselves accountable to that's one of the reasons we put the report out there and have talked about it so publicly is we want to make sure that we we put these stakes in the ground so that we can actually keep coming back to them and understand what our um what our goals and what our priorities are so recycled is is, is i think in the future, I think a recycled alloy and recycled aluminum has just a massive potential. I think there's still a lot of question marks around carbon fiber. Um, carbon fiber is an incredible material to ride. It's an incredible material, actually, in its weight to strength. You guys, you guys all know this. I'm sure people listening know who probably know a lot more about carbon fiber than than I do, even. Um, but it's 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 a hard material when you talk about the beginning and the end. Um, it's a little bit harder to, to extract. It's a li- it's a little bit harder to um, figure out that closed loop um, and that end of life solution. We've worked and partnered with some carbon recyclers um, in the past. It's been um, kind of a stop and start uh, for us. It's something that we're actively investigating right now is what we can do to to put together a more sustainable sort of end of life carbon uh, solution. But it's definitely one of the bigger question marks that we have right now. Uh, in the report, you kind of quote the, uh, I guess, the production of a, a Marlin frame, which is like your entry level uh, mountain bike frame, uh, aluminium frame, as kind of requiring like a third of the emissions versus like a, a carbon Madone frame. Uh, do you have any insight into how that like might compare against, say, like producing a higher end alloy frame? Yeah, it really depends on a number of things. So when you take a look at how much carbon in, uh, is emitted to essentially make a bike, we chose several different models. We chose um, an entry-level uh, hardtail to kind of represent hybrids, um, aluminum bikes, um, really a large set of volume products. We chose the Madone as, as a um, carbon fiber road bike, um, something that uh, is written for various, so has a, a different different kind of supply chain when you look at parts and suppliers. We looked at a full suspension mountain bike because obviously you have suspension components and in, in rear, front. How are those? Um, those things are going to hold a little bit different realities. And then you look all the way to a full suspension um, electric bike, which you know you've got batteries and motors, and you've got all kinds of um, other considerations that are going to add up to a much different picture. Um, and so when you, I think when you compare and you take a look at all of the different categories, every single category holds some sort of opportunity for improvement and holds some some information there. And really, what we found out is the whether the aluminum is is high is is um, uh, more designed for for a volume product or an entry level product. It really um, it, it doesn't matter so much necessarily in the sort of the material itself, as far as like how far away from the supplier it was, um, what the supply chain, what the components look like, how many different suppliers contributed to the bikes. Some of those bikes, as we uh, as, as we found out with supply chain difficulties, have a lot of different suppliers. So really, how much transportation does it actually take to actually assemble that bike? Um, it really kind of depends on on a, on a range of things rather than exactly sort of what the what the material is. So has Trek looked at, I mean, this is something that I kind of want to save a little bit until later, but has Trek looked at uh, at expanding its use of materials that require less emissions for frames? 
Yeah, it's, it's something we're always we're always taking a look at what we can do um, as far as from either a ride quality technology perspective. Um, and, and now I think when you have this, uh, this has become such a more important piece of our business. I, I can't say historically, I think that we've done. I think this is where a lot of opportunity for improvement on, on our side uh, has been has been realized is this is kind of a new lens that we've added to our equation to start looking at things. I would say that we were operating in a world where um, we may have had an inkling that there was room for improvement. We just didn't exactly know until we had the numbers and we had the data. And I think now moving forward, I think you're going to see a lot more of that because this is just a new lens that we're able to sort of view our actions through. Okay. Um, so you mentioned something about uh, a lot of your manufacturing partners and suppliers and that sort of thing. And uh, I guess that leads into the next uh, action item that we have on the list here because you've stated that you want to create zero landfill manufacturing facilities by 2024. Um, it does seem like there's some caveats with that, however, because you've identified um, U.S. domestic facilities and uh, distribution centers, retailers, and specifically German manufacturing facility. Um, but what about Asia, since that is where the bulk of your stuff is actually produced? Um, because and, and also looking at the list of things that you want to have as, as you know, quote unquote, zero waste, it does seem like that applies mostly to like non-manufacturing processes. Um, so how do you, where does all that other stuff fit in there? Yeah, that, that's, a, that's a great question. And I think what we did here is we were very specific about like where we can start from. Um, when you take a look at like the uh, facilities that Trek owns and the, where the places that we have the most influence, we're really going to start at the places that actually are, are Trek owned facilities um, or places that like, you know, that we have a direct lease one. But it's clearly like we own and manage this place, which so everything that's outlined here in the um, report are places that we can directly have um like chief influence over and we can actually design the entire processes when you take a look at you know asia as you mentioned we don't own those facilities and we work with really closely with a lot of different suppliers and, and different um, um partners there and we can we feel like we will have a ton of learning to share and we will have a lot of influence but what we wanted to just be really clear about is we feel like we can make the most difference and uh on on places that we own what we didn't want to do is we were really careful about this report is we we're really, really sensitive to any um, perception that we might be greenwashing or that we might be making a claim that we really felt like we couldn't have direct influence or we really couldn't get there. Or it was really just so far out there that um, that and, and that there wasn't a way for us to track or measure anything. Um, because what we're going to be doing here in another year or so, we're going to be releasing our new report with metrics and, and updates exactly like, hey, these are the 10 things we laid out. How are we doing so that we're we, that there's built-in accountability there and that there's updates and that it's part of people's knowledge base around Trek. Um, we didn't feel like we necessarily could do that with every single place that, that makes Trek products. We would love to do that in the future. And I think that's, we're going to have influence at, um, once we know more, but we really knew that we had to start somewhere and this is where we were going to start. Okay. So I guess basically to summarize, it's kind of really more, this is kind of more your statement of sort of realistic starting points as opposed to overarching goals long-term. Yeah, absolutely. And I love the part. I love that more companies are, are taking a look and, and making some some commitments. I'm a little bit nervous that there are some people out there that are just that kind of are saying these things without understanding exactly where you are yet. I think it's really hard to know and make a statement that you're going to do this without exactly knowing what you're doing now. Um, and we wanted to be, we were really sensitive to the fact that, like, we're not going to do that. We're going to say this is where we're going to start from. This is the data that we have. This is what we think we can influence. This is how we're going to progress. Um, 
once, you know, hopefully by 24, 2024, if we've done what we need to do, we can say, great, we have now made these facilities are now uh, landfill um, are, are landfill free. Here's what we can take from all the learning and all the work and all the effort we put in. And this is where we can um, export some of the, those lessons um, to, to other places. I found the the fact that you had sort of emissions linked to various bikes quite interesting because I think that's sort of an area that because, uh, you know, you're, you're dealing with uh, third party suppliers and they're often dealing with third party suppliers uh, and you don't really have a window into that supply chain always. Um, I found that quite interesting that you're able to put together those emissions numbers. Is there, is there any insight into how, I guess, logistically how difficult that was to achieve? Mm hmm. We really did have to find partners that um, were willing to, to work with us on this. And, and, and we're, we're, we're blessed with really close relationships throughout our supply chain. And I would say that um, it, it wasn't necessarily so hard to um, collect the data as it was necessarily to um, extract exactly the learning and lessons. You know, we, we, we talk about this um, a fair bit, but like there's data and then there's wisdom. Um, and when you're left with uh this, you know this amount of emissions and this is where this stuff comes from it then i'd say more of the challenge came from okay once we have all this information what are we going to do with it and what are we going to do about it so i would say it was much i was for for us it was a much more um complex uh process on that side than it was actually to work with uh wap um on on actually getting the data together they're pretty experienced through a number of different places. This is just what they do. And so they have a process and they have uh, a way and a methodology of, of doing this that uh, that was really, really just helpful for us because I think left to our own devices, we just, we wouldn't have been able to accomplish that. Okay, cool. The next action item that you have on here, I'm a little confused about. Um, how does establishing and protecting new trails promote sustainability? Mm -hmm. This is a really interesting one for us because concurrently, like while we were working on this report, we were also talking about the establishment of a new foundation and the new and the foundation for the Trek foundation is really kind of a legacy gift. And something that we wanted to directly influence was we really want, were interested in um, funding trail projects throughout the world. And there's, you know, um, we're really, really involved with a number of organizations and uh, you know, from, from NICA to um, people for bikes in a number of places. But we're also reached out to by a, a, a number of people who have these incredible projects that just need, sometimes they need small amounts of funding, sometimes they need larger amounts of funding. We didn't necessarily have a mechanism to be able to do that. And when you take a look at actually like what these trail projects are going to do, these trail projects are actually essentially land preservation projects without maybe necessarily calling them that because I understand that's, that's kind of a lofty term. But what you have is essentially the establishment and protection of public access trails that is going to be, that are going to be protected from urban development, from, from um, it's, it's places that are going to be sort of protected wild spaces. And we know that as far as from, uh, there's actually no better carbon mitigation system in the world than a tree. And we took actually this is this is part of the sort of the inside baseball part of this process was that we took a lot of, uh, a huge look at different tree planting um, uh, programs and we took a uh, reforestation was 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 something we discussed a lot. We thought that that was really great, but it, you know you're talking about old growth forests are actually like what's really really effective at keeping that carbon out of the air and planting new trees while well, a fantastic thing to do and just an incredibly necessary part um, of, of of how we protect the planet was not necessarily going to be as impactful for us as actually protecting um, wild spaces that already have a lot of vegetation that's already doing that sort of that carbon mitigation. So 
really we took a look at it as as far as like this is going to be great not only just for people and for communities for 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 the future it's also going to be just great for those communities like um, from an environmental perspective. Um, and so what we're able to do now through the Trek Foundation is take a look at a lot of different trail projects throughout the throughout the world. And, and we're going to have to essentially apply for grants from the Foundation for Trails that they care about that need a little bit of help. And our hope is that, um, you know, 10, 15, 20 years from now, that there is just thousands and thousands of protected trails through through wild spaces that, are, that will never be developed um, that we, you know, um, played a, a helpful role in. Interesting. Well, I guess I don't have too much of an argument against that, although it, it is okay, it's hard to complain about protecting and establishing new trails, really, uh, certainly from my selfish standpoint. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And, you know, I think, you know, there is a little bit of that, too. Right. I mean, we, we love riding trails like you know, so it's a uh, it, it, that, that's a big passion project uh, for for a lot of us. Um, the next one on here, again, this is another no brainer, just removing plastic waste from packaging. Um, it was pretty cool to see what the actual numbers uh, were because I guess based on your own estimates at this point, you've you've cut out almost two hundred thousand kilos of plastic from your packaging since uh, sometime in twenty twenty. Um, do you foresee a point that you're going to be able to eliminate virtually all plastic from your stuff? Yes, that is the goal. Um, I think we are working. We're, that is something we are actively working towards. It's going to be really hard to do. I will say that. I think this is where we kind of found that small hinges can swing some really huge doors and one or two zip ties in one box actually represents could potentially millions of zip ties. Um, and when you start weighing those things, um, against each other, and, and so you make a small change, uh, whether or not that zip tie then becomes, um, you know, a piece of, uh, biodegradable material or it becomes, um, recycled paper or something that something else that's made from recycled content or can be used again for something else, you're actually making a micro decision that has macro effect. And we, our packaging department has done really, I can't say enough great things. They, they actually picked up this plastic free March way before we started working on a report way before, like we um, really, really dove into the research and, and our own emissions. They were already working on this. So really collecting their findings, they hadn't necessarily packaged it up. And I think they were kind of working on this really well-intended thing. They just didn't understand exactly like the massive impact that they were, that they were having. They just were knew that they were doing the right thing by removing bubble wrap, by removing zip ties, by removing rubber bands. Um, one, you know, sometimes a couple pieces at a time and, and to actually wrap our arms around that. It's, it's kind of mind blowing, honestly, when we started taking a look at Oh, well, you didn't know yet. We took all the these um, plastic bags or our boxes. No, don't ship with the plastic bags anymore. Or, and we made these other changes. And then you just kind of start going along. And it's like, well, what else can you do? And like, oh, we have these plans to do these other things. The, the, when you say, is it going to be possible to be plastic free? Yes, I think it will be possible. Getting there is going to be really hard. Um, and we're coming to a place now where you start to bump up. Like a lot of those earlier decisions were, that were actually, we had an easy solution and they were easier to make. It's really when you get down to that last zip tie or you get down to that last little piece where removing that last one or that last two or three is going to really be the challenge. Um, but we're really, really excited about where uh, where things are headed. With that, I guess, yeah, bikes are traditionally shipped in cardboard boxes in a way that's not really consumer facing. Like the, the dealership will take it out of the box, present the customer with a bike, but not a box. Um, but I guess it's a different story with like your Bontrager line of products where that is a consumer facing product. 
I assume that's a much more difficult thing to do to create like a product that's still attractive for sale yet is more eco-friendly in its packaging. How's, how's that been? It, it is. So there's a couple of things there. I think when you're looking at packaging, um, packaging says so much about a brand and it says so much about a company. Um, and it, uh, it just communicates more than just the product attributes or the price or the name of the product. I think, you know, um, companies like Apple have redefined how packaging can actually build brand. Um, and so it's a balancing act, like a lot of things. And when you take a look at like other companies and, you know, that have made massive inroads in the sustainability space, well, you're taking a look at like, um, like a Patagonia probably has like, um, a hang tag that's probably printed almost essentially on recycled paper or paper that can be recycled. Or um, you've got companies that, that they use packaging to communicate that part of their brand ethos. And I think that's how we're going to, I think that's what we're probably going to do is, is kind of talk about like, yes, this is a small amount of packaging, but this is why this is, and this is why, you know, this is the content and this is where it came from. And I think that that kind of transparency is something that's really become appreciated throughout the, um, throughout um, uh, the world, as far as from a consumer and, and from a, a, a retailer standpoint. Yeah, because it certainly does seem like there's a lot more uh, visibility and awareness of that sort of thing now, just like like all the plastic bags and that sort of thing. So it, it, I'm happy to see that you're spending so much time looking at that, and I'm curious to see where it goes. And we're, we're by no means um, perfect yet. You know, I, I actually, I came across a photo of a, of a, um, a package somebody had gotten from Trek on Tumblr, and um, it was packaged in a way that was that we would probably look at and say, you know, that that's not where we want to be. Um, and they did. They made mention. They're like, hey, there's some extra pieces in here. I think you guys need to take a look at. And actually, we use those moments really as teaching moments for ourselves and for our staff and for our warehousing staff and making sure that, hey, we're holding ourselves um, accountable to that higher standard. And uh, I think, you know, um, consumer packaging is going to look very, very different in the future than it does today, because I think it's going to have to. Um, the last couple of action items that you have on here are ones that I'm particularly excited about. And it also seems like the ones that are going to be far and away the most diff difficult to implement um, because you're talking about increasing access to bike share, but also more importantly, shifting people's uh, mindsets as far as how they feel like they should get around to where they need to go. Um, and essentially what you're talking about here is getting people out of their cars and onto bikes. Uh, whether it's their own or one that they're getting from a from from a a, a rideshare location, how the heck do you do that? <laughs> this is you've identified the hardest thing, and that is why we've kind of put it in that number one, number two spot because one is the most impactful, two is also the hardest. You know, bike share for us, and this is also kind of where I think um, the industry actually, the industry as a whole, uh, has the most influence and the most ability to really change the world and make an incredible positive difference. Um, because we actually, use, we, we make a product that by its use can actually, it, be, it can actually replace or mitigate the carbon that it took to make it. That's weird. That's like, that is a very blessed and unique position uh, to be in. So what we're going to do here is a couple of things. Um, bike share is, has been something that we have done for a number of years. And with um, we've had greater success in some markets than we've had in others. It's been, uh, again, it's, it has not been um, a straight line for us by any means. But what we're seeing is more consumers and more people understanding and like kind of getting used to and warming up to the idea of sharing. And you're going to see, you see this from a number of different uh, kind of vehicles. You know, now you between, you know, Lyft, Uber and, um, and scooter companies and everything else. It's just 
it's, it's just, it kind of takes a shift in consumer behavior and a shift in culture really to, I think, embrace and warm up to the idea of bike share. And I think, you know, you've got emerging generations, what do you, whether you want to call them millennials or Gen Z, who really have grown up with that being a cultural norm for them. We think that bike share is going to revolutionize the way people move in cities and continue. And it already has. If you, if you went to New York City today versus you went to New York City pre-city bike 10, 12 years ago, it's a different place. It's become a bike town. It's become a better place to ride a bike because of bike share. Bike share is, is, is just one of those things that if, the, uh, if we can invest in doing it in a way that works for the municipalities, and I think it's been shown dumping a bunch of bikes in a city and, is, and, and having no oversight over their maintenance, their, where they are, where they're located, how they're treated, I think that's been shown to actually be the opposite in a way of, of, of um, I think, sustainable business practices. But if you if you have those partnerships with municipalities, you put the bikes where people need them most. You put the, you take the local knowledge of of where they can be most effective. You work directly hand in hand with those places rather than working against them. You can really change the way that people um, use bikes in a place. And so, bike share is going to be something we're going to continue to invest heavily in uh, in the foreseeable future. How much influence do you have over those municipalities when it comes to building out bike friendly infrastructure, though? Because certainly you really only ideally want to put these things in areas where people are actually going to use them and where they have some place to use them. Um, so how do you, how do you foster a, a more friendly environment so that people actually will feel safe and will want to use those bikes? Mm-hmm. And this is really where it takes um, cooperation and collaboration from the other side of the table. The, the municipality, the city itself needs to want to change. It needs to want to be a great place to live. It needs to want to that, that sort of community health aspect. And most cities have really, have really warmed up to this. I think the, the conversations 10 years ago, it was a much different conversation 10 years ago than it was today to discuss about how bike share and how, you know, uh, transportation can help not only sort of your, uh, your, your local transportation and, and, and uh, mobility, but also really community health. This is one of those things where I think the pandemic has actually uh, enlightened a lot of people as far as um, what, when you talk about whole, when you talk about the health of a community, you're not just talking about maybe necessarily like what the obesity rate is or what the, um, um, you know, what, what the actual medical bills or medical records look like. It's actually a kind of more holistic um, idea of community health. You've seen so many cities over the past year and a half or so that have either by force or by um, the fact that they just had uh, the community shut down lanes and, and make them more friendly for bikes and walkers, um, open more green spaces, uh, more places for people to spend more time outside in, in ways that were completely unimaginable beforehand and never would have been approached. And so it's a different it's a different uh, kind of conversation today. But it really does take strong commitment from the city itself uh, or from wherever that location is. And most places when they say when they raise their hand and say, yeah, we, we think that bike share could be a, um, uh, a beneficial thing for us. They are they are the greatest partners um, because, again, they know where people live. They know where people um, travel. They know where um, they know how also active transportation can kind of be a last mile solution. So making sure that your your docks or your bike share is available in places where people are either getting off subways or there's bus stops or there's other sort of infrastructure there that's kind of connected so that it becomes much less of a revolutionary thing and just becomes much more of a uh, uh, city's transportation ecosystem. 
how often do these municipalities and cities come to you as opposed to you approaching places where you think it might work well? That's a great question. I wish I had a good answer for you. I, I could certainly get a better answer from our B-Cycle staff. I think in the past, it's um, been mostly cities um, sending out RFPs. Like, um, So they send out a request for a proposal, and then a number of bike share companies would um, uh, pitch you know, their system and the, and the cost structure and a number of things. I know that we were um, we were actually I, we were actually beat out in New York's program. And at the time, to be honest with you, it might have been a blessing in disguise because I think that project may have just been bigger than than um, what we were ready for at that time. And New York has been again, I, I, I um, bring up New York again because I think it's a, a city that has embraced bikes as part of their transportation ecosystem. And so uh, today it's a little bit more of a mix of, of taking a look and trying um, to convince um, places. But it really, I think, predominantly has been cities coming to bike share um, uh, themselves because they also have seen uh, companies that have just either dumped scooters in the middle of the city or dumped bikes and then have just kind of um, without without a lot of heads up or any heads up sometimes, uh, unfortunately. And, they, and, and when they take a look at like what their options are there, that's probably not necessarily going to be the most viable solution for them. Mm. And the scooters don't always work out for the user either. It's, it, it's, it's, a, really, it's a really hard thing, yeah. Um, mm. I think a number of cities, you take a look at Nashville, Nashville's had their struggles um, with, uh, with, with, with that kind of transportation. And mm. yeah, and it's, you take a look, it's like, is this, is this a leisure activity? Is this a, um, is this a transportation activity? Is this, and, if it, and if the answer is yes, that's, you know, that's fine. Um, because I think it doesn't have to necessarily be one or the other. But what it has to do is I think it has to work for, um, for the city itself. And it has to work for, for the citizens of that city. I want to come back to something that we touched on a little bit earlier and uh, looking at the first couple of pages of this report, you can, you can see that um, I guess looking at where the majority of your emissions come from, uh, you mentioned that the, the far and away, the biggest pieces come from uh, manufacturing and transportation. So while we have these 10 action items on here, that kind of like the, the, I guess in some sense you can maybe refer to it as sort of like the lower hanging fruit for now, but the, Looking at the the emission stuff, um, and particularly that that the color bar graph that you had on there that was really eye opening. Uh, so, Dave, you met, you mentioned this a little bit earlier. You're looking at that that Marlin aluminum kind of more entry level hardtail, as opposed to a higher end um, carbon road bike or especially a high end uh, e mountain bike, for example. So, a carbon road bike, you're looking at that, it's roughly double the emissions. Uh, and a high end e mountain bike is almost three times the emissions of of that uh, aluminum hardtail. I mean, ultimately, Trek is is a business that is they're trying to make money. You're trying to be profitable. Um, in particular, looking at something like e-bikes, where that is where you're seeing the most growth. Um, how how do you reconcile all of that? Because on the one hand, you do you do have this core business that is involved in making things and trying to get people to buy them. But you're also trying to do that in some sort of responsible way, and and it, it, looking at the the chart and the data that you that you presented out there, like it it almost seems like those two things aren't necessarily uh, compatible with each other. So like, how do you how do you deal with that? <laughs> sure, that's that's a big question. <laughs> um, it's kind of one of the reasons why I saved that for last. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I, and I, I think that's um, man, that is the question. I, I think uh, we're all probably asking ourselves of of, of things. I think at the end of the day, when we examine the report and we examine really why we're here and what our purpose is, we genuinely feel that what we do 
provides a benefit for people and the planet. Now, the way that we go about it is the way that we need to be more considerate. And for many, many years, um, we just we just didn't we operated without that knowledge and without necessarily that focus. And that's um, that that's been something that we have sort of had to kind of come to terms with. Right. I think we all had had uh, we got the data. You have a tough look in the mirror and you say, um, you know, uh, this is where we're at. But it, at the same time, we feel that what we do as far as creating bikes and um, getting people on bikes and helping to build more infrastructure and helping to build more trails, if not Trek, then who? I think we feel like some um, and not necessarily that there's not other people doing great work. There are so many people doing such incredible work. But if we feel as though we have a personal responsibility to, to provide this betterment um, and these and this product and, and use our um, funds for uh, better. And so I think for us, it's much more of just a uh, holding ourselves accountable to understanding exactly how we go about making that world better. We feel that the world is going is a better place with bikes. We feel it's a much more sustainable way of, of living. It's a healthier activity. It's a way to get kids off of screens and into, and into nature and on trails and to really help people connect with each other and with the world around them. So I think at the end of the day, we feel that um, bikes are just, a, we've said this for years, that they are a simple solution to so many complex problems. And if we can stay focused on using our product and our influence and our and our um, funds to um, sort of to honor that vision, then I think we're feeling pretty good about the direction. So at one point, do you is there almost a certain level of I guess, for lack of a better word, is, is there a certain level of guilt that's involved in in some of this? Because I mean, it's something that that we deal with, and and certainly Dave and I in particular deal with uh, on our end, just in the sense that. We are constantly talking about, you know, new this, the advancement in this, progression in technology, that, whatever. Um, and all of that ultimately, whether intentionally or not, is sort of prompting people to to want to replace their old stuff with new stuff or kind of subconsciously or actively, whatever, tells people that this this more advanced thing is better than what you already have. Um, when in reality, from a sustainability standpoint, ultimately the best thing to do is just to keep what you already have as opposed to consume something else. Um, so I know on, on our end, like I said, it's something that, that we, that we've been talking a lot about internally and trying to figure out what, you know, how, how we operate at that point, like what, what that means. And I know for us, we've been talking a lot more about, you know, ways to keep your current stuff on the road and, you know, trying to look more critically at, at how much you really do need, quote unquote, that new thing um, and how much benefit it actually provides. And I'm kind of curious if looking at Trek as far as your your messaging and your marketing moving forward, it, it, it does seem clear, as I said early on, it does seem clear to me that this is not just a lip service thing because it, in doing this, you also... I mean, yes, it can be perceived by a lot of people as, you know, Trek doing this great thing for sustainability, whatever, but it also opens you up to a lot of criticism um, and you're doing this willfully. Um, so I'm curious, as far as Trek's mar marketing and messaging goes, is there, is there going to be some difference now moving forward as far as how things are presented to people? That's a very, very uh, good and it's a great and considered question. I think on the guilt side, you know, I think for us, it's a um, much more of a response. We look at it more as a responsibility, I think, than a guilt thing. We, we met with a gentleman named Robert Swan, who was one of the first people to ever walk to both poles and has done an incredible amount of service for environmental stewardship and, and education. And he said something that really stuck with a lot of us, and that is that the belief 
threat to the um, planet is the belief that somebody else is going to do something for it. And so for us, it's really much more of a personal responsibility thing. And this again is, is uh, the, the report was never meant to be a destination. The report is the beginning of the journey for us. And it's just reporting exactly where we're at and what we want to do and the change that we want to create. And from there, what we're going to do is we're going to, we're reexamining a lot of things through, like we said before, like a completely new lens. Um, I think offering consumers more education and more transparency is something we're really excited about. We want to talk about like, Hey, if you make this choice versus this choice, this, you know, um, this might be uh, the difference or, Hey, by fixing your bike rather than buying this new bike, which is totally acceptable. Can we keep your bike on the road longer? Can we keep you riding longer? How do we, and how do we do, or how do we help you um, ride longer and, and, or just more often. So one of the, the biggest things we talk about in the report is actually our dedication to actually creating safer cycling infrastructure, because we understand that people have safer places to ride, um, where they feel, um, um, you know, safe for their kids to do it for, for, for themselves, whether that's the road, the trail, the way to get to school, whatever, um, more people are going to, um, be looking for those solutions. And then it's, you know, then it's also offering product solutions for that. Can we actually create, um, uh, bikes that are easier to, um, um, you know, bikes that are easier to fix or keep on the road longer, or, or is it, uh, um, I think when you take a look at all of the things that we're, we're, we're doing now because of this report, it's been kind of surprising for us uh, how much, um, new, but again, it's, it's definitely not the destination. This is, this is just the, this is just the journey. Uh, similar to what we see in the food industry where, uh, where food items, even in restaurants and stuff often come with like ingredient lists and calorie counts and that sort of thing. Has anyone inside Trek considered the idea of attaching to every product that you, you sell a, an actual rating or a number for like, you know, this thing produces this many, this much CO2? Like, would, would that be something that you would be able to provide or would be interested in providing so that people can make more informed decisions as far as sustainability goes? Absolutely. It's definitely something we've, we've talked about. You know, we picked the four um, categories that we did to die, do our deep dives into because we felt they represented really the, the um, sort of the bell curve of, of our product line and, and really product lines across the industry. And we're going to be doing a fair bit of education as far as we also um, backtracked a little bit and said, well, OK, so if this is how much carbon it takes to make that bike, well, then how much riding actually is it to replace the carbon that that took? And, you know, we did we did this um, this little mini study. And found that actually, if you can replace the carbon emissions of, um, if you can replace 430 miles of traditional carbon emissions, so let's say you're going to ride your bike 430 miles of miles that you would have ridden your car. And it has to be like, and this is the caveat, it really does have to be directly attributable to, I was either going to take a bus or a car or some other carbon emitting uh, vehicle. Right. It's not 430 miles of trail riding. <laughs> no, exactly. I mean, I love... I'd love it to be true, I'd um, but if you rode your bike 430 miles collectively to the trail and then rode, that would be even better. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it's uh, it really isn't at 430. And so educating people a little bit about, um, hey, you know, w when you ride this bike, really think about maybe getting 430 miles and um, what can we do to help people track that? And what can we help people do to, to, to make it um, um, make it like not not necessarily scary, but, but a fun and kind of part of like a, a goal for themselves. Because when you're talking about sustainability, you're really talking about some very scary existential, um, problems that, that, that we're facing as, as a, as a, as a people. And 
the way we presented the report, I know I, we, we, I've read some comments that are like, well, yeah, it's pretty dressed up as a marketing report. And I was like, well, I don't, I think if you don't present it, if you present it as a white paper, I mean, that's going to be, that's, you're excluding a number of people that are going to be interested in even digesting your, your, um, your information. And so, yeah, it is actually the bar graphs are colorful and yeah, there's, there's, there's photography in there and we, and we, um, tell the story in a certain way that we feel was really digestible for a lot of people. So with um, what we're going to be doing on education campaigns with 430 is not necessarily making this like a, a guilt thing, but making it much more of a goal thing. And uh, I think it definitely speaks to consumers' uh, level of interest in the education of what it took to make the thing that they're using and then what might their use actually benefit um, and how they can actually participate in that. And so, yeah, I think, I think offering people more information and more transparency is something we're absolutely going to be doing. Um, I know you're, well, I know you have a flight to catch pretty soon, so we should wrap this up pretty soon. But one thing I really wanted to find out is Trek has clearly been, as far as I can tell anyway, you're, you're, you're at the forefront in terms of putting all this together and just really putting all this out there publicly for people to see. Um, have you heard from any other of the major companies who have been like, you know, Hey, this is a really, really good, interesting, insightful thing that you've done can you provide us with some information? Like basically, can you refer us or something? How do we do this? Like, have you heard from any other companies that also want to do this? Yeah, we have. We have heard from several places that um, have said, hey, this is really interesting. And just can I ask a few questions about how you get started? Um, and so it, it's for us, that was another reason to put out the the report. The report is not, necess it's not necessarily like great news uh, throughout, as, as we talked about and as you guys pointed out. But what we wanted to do is really use it to sort of just educate people about where we're at, what our process was, and hopefully maybe inspire people to some people to start their their own journey. Um, and we have actually had some outreach from throughout the industry about, hey, you know, can I get the number from WAP? Or hey, like, how did you guys get started? Or what was the story? Or we've even had people from different. I had somebody um, from um, outside, way outside the industry, in telecommunication, a big telecommunications company, who wanted to know how he gets his senior leadership excited about this. And then, you know, I, I didn't have a great answer for him, unfortunately, because our senior leadership actually is part of the reason this thing exists, is that they were already so excited that um, doing what we had to do to create a report was not necessarily something we had to convince anybody of. But it's been very interesting to see the outreach uh, that people have, have, have had from it in a number of different conversations. And in, we're learning new, something new every single day when it comes to uh uh, this. I think we were those. The first thing we had to be very comfortable with is that we we really are not we're we're not experts in this, and we've really had a ton to learn, and we're still learning so much. And I think if we can do a good job of sharing those learnings and making sure that um, this that that people have access to that, I think that's where we can actually have probably um, a, a significant influence. Well, Eric, I'm really glad to see that Trek put this out, and and like you said, it it's certainly not particularly rosy it's not like a rah 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 we're awesome sort of thing um and i and i do have to give trek quite a bit of credit for just making that commitment to to do this in general i i would imagine producing the report wasn't very cheap uh my guess is that wap sustainability sustainability consulting is not something that we're like you're, you're not getting a deal on that on like you know <laughs> some, somewhere you're not like you're not getting a coupon for for that report <laughs> there's no you're not you're not trading him a dime for it no, there's no bike company discount on. Oh, you're a bike company. No, 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 no it's, it's, yeah, nothing. No, nothing like nothing like that. Um, I think we looked at it as very much. Um, it's very much an investment, and when we probably look at all of the investments we've made, I'd say we probably would look back on that one and say that was a damn good investment. Okay, well, I am super keen to see 
how this investment pays off in terms of how things change moving forward. Uh, and, and I certainly am really excited to see what next year's report looks like. Is uh, I feel like this seems like the sort of thing where it sounds like you're quite committed to it long term and we'll be able to see some some fruits of all that labor moving forward. So 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 good on you for doing that. Absolutely. We're excited. We're excited to do the work. And um, if, if anybody out there listening would, would like to um, talk about it or has any questions or anything, um, feel free to drop us a line. We're, we're happy to help really anybody that, that is inspired or, or wants to get started or learn more. Cool. Well, Eric, thanks again for being on the show. I know you've got a flight to catch. Uh, maybe we shouldn't have mentioned <laughs> that you have a flight to catch. You know, I was thinking about that. It was about so, it's, <laughs> it's so funny. But it's like, um, I actually, it's, I was thinking about that and I was like, yeah, we're going to reduce our corporate travel by 50%, which actually, um, I think, I think we're actually, when we take a look at it, we're, we're doing just fine on that metric. And then I started doing the math in my head. I'm like, well, before 2019, you flew this much and you haven't taken one trip since, you know, 20, uh, March of 2020. So that's like a full year and a half. And then I was just doing this mental math and I'm like, well, yeah, but you're still, you're still, it's interesting yeah, timing yeah. for sure. I mean, it is, it, I mean, I guess we do still have to be realistic about this stuff. So Anyway, and I, and I relearned again. why it's actually a great thing not to have to travel for work. I have been relearning it for the past three days. So, <laughs> oh my God, it's so good. It's so good. Well, Eric, as much as it would be nice to see you in person again, uh, hopeful, I do hope to see you in person at some point in the near future, but I don't know. Maybe we'll get there by train this time or something. We'll see. Thanks, guys. I really appreciate it. All right, Dave, that was quite a lot to digest. Uh, what are your thoughts on all that? I think it's quite, I'm quite positive about it. I mean, it's quite cool to see a company so willing to publish something that isn't positive, right? Like they're the first mover to do this amongst the big brands. And a lot of those findings don't really portray them in the best light. Like the, the carbon emissions of a of an e-bike or a, or a high-end road bike versus an entry-level bike, those aren't super positive numbers or like the numbers associated with transporting bikes around also not super positive. Um, but at least they're willing to put them out there. Um, and that's a lot more than what we can say for others in the industry who haven't yet done that and hopefully will follow. Um, so yeah, I, I think it's it's cool to see a, a company of that size being trying to be as transparent as possible at this point in time and, and trying to work on areas that are feasibly, you know, can be improved upon. Uh, and one thing that we unfortunately didn't have a chance to ask Eric before you had to go, and I know this was pretty high on your list, mm-hmm. Uh, was manufacturing location. So what were your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think I think that's definitely a big question. Like Trek, uh, especially, is a, is a great example. They were one of the, the last companies to, I guess, remove local manufacturing out of the US um, to, to completely offshore their manufacturing. Uh, and I guess, yeah, that was, it was certainly a question that we uh, would have been great to get an answer on is, you know, if transport is such a major factor in the emissions produced of, of selling bicycles, then surely the answer is to produce more locally and require less transport, all these bikes. So yeah, I'm suddenly eager, you know, maybe a year from now when Trex published the, the next report and has, uh, you know, fi- uh, seen how they've stacked up against their, their steps that they want to take and, you know, have maybe announced new steps. I'm, I'm keen to discuss the idea of, you know, whether they're considering onshoring and bringing manufacturing back to the US uh, and also, you know, whether they're investing in, um, you know, more metal bikes as well. So I think that's another big thing is, you know, if metal bikes are so, uh, so much better in terms of um, production and emissions, then surely the answer is, is to make metal bikes sexier. 
right? To make them more attractive for the consumer, make higher spec versions of the metal bikes and and really try to, yeah, I guess, encourage customers to, to choose metal over carbon fiber. Um, and I think that also applies to potentially also investing in, you know, steel bikes as well. Um, I think at the niche side of things, we're seeing steel bikes coming back to being a success and being popular. And I think it'd be cool to see someone like Trek throw their weight behind that as well. Oh man, that would be super, super interesting. Well, um, as Eric mentioned, and I guess just in fairness to Trek, he did, he was quite clear in saying that this was more of, um, kind of more like a pseudo starting point, or I guess, you know, like a continuation point as opposed to just sort of a, a cheerleading document sort of thing. Um, so clearly this is something that we're going to be talking quite a lot more about in the near future or, you know, certainly far future as well, hopefully. Um, and you know, I, I, I am certainly curious to see if other companies are willing to open kind of like pull back the curtain as much as Trek at some point. So hopefully we can conduct this sort of interview with somebody else moving forward. So we will find out. Well, in the meantime, that is our episode for this week. Thank you, as always, for joining us. Uh, if you haven't already subscribed to the Nerd Alert podcast, please do so. Uh, and more importantly, maybe just please go ahead and tell your friends about Nerd Alert because it really does help us bring you more episodes. Because as you may or may not have noticed, we don't have any ads on this show. And that is not because people don't ask. Uh, it's because that's our choice. And so far, we have been, we've, been, we've been making the conscious decision to keep this show ad-free but it does help when more people listen. Uh, so please tell your buddies. Uh, so anyway, and in the meantime, if you liked what you heard, please feel free to give us a rating or review, especially on iTunes, because that also helps quite a bit as well. Uh, so with that, we will say goodbye for this week, and we will see you on the next episode of Nerd Alert. Thanks as always. Bye-bye.